Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 7 this morning. You're going to need a Bible. It's a uh, lengthy section of Scripture, so there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. And uh, if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you today. But Romans chapter 7, as we're picking up where we left off last week, as we're going through uh, the book of Romans, uh, we've talked about justification for some time. i trying my best to keep it from um, feedbacking here on me. The, uh, the idea here that Paul has from chapter 1 to chapter 5 has been justification, that we are justified in Christ. It's not by works that we're saved, but we are uh, imputed his righteousness so that we are justified in that. So as we got into chapter 6, what does that look like for the life of a believer? It's a life of sanctification. And so as we get into chapter 7, he's going to then further talk about the struggle of that sanctification. And so as we looked at last week, sanctification is God's sovereign application of our salvation. It is what is happening in the life of a believer as they live out a life in Christ. So by, uni by the uniting of himself to us through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and by the assistance of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that works within us, sanctification takes place in congruence with our responsibility of actions. I know that's, that's a, a lengthy definition there, but there is a responsibility of actions that takes place in the life of a believer once they have been taken from death to life. And so what we do is we find ourselves in this relationship with Christ where we are responsible to say no to sin because sin still exists and it's all around us and it's trying to creep itself back up into our life. And so there's this responsibility of actions. So we have a responsibility in our sanctification, not for our sanctification, in our sanctification. Our ability to fulfill that responsibility is under his sovereign enablement in Christ. So therefore, you would be hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. And there would be nothing that you could do within yourself to produce in yourself a righteousness. It is only by Christ living in and through us. So we are responsible when we sin. If we sin, we are responsible. We're, we're responsible. If you sin, then you have chosen to sin. As we talked about last week, if you are a believer in Christ, then you are dead to sin. That means that sin no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer under its reign. It is no longer the one that has enslaved you, but you have been liberated. You have been set free from sin. And so if you continue in sin, then you have chosen to sin, is what Paul's getting at, because you are dead. You're freed from its reign. However, when you abstain from sin, Christ is to be credited for our obedience because that was a righteousness that was not our own. That is an amazing thought as you think about this sanctification, that we are responsible and yet we are completely reliant at the same time. Believers are simultaneously responsible and reliant. This is the life of a believer. This is what Paul's getting at, that there is now this, this struggle that goes on in the Christian life because we are responsible, we know the weight of that responsibility, and yet we are 100% reliant on Christ to do something in us that we are incapable of doing ourselves. We are simultaneously 100% responsible for our sin and 100% reliant for our sanctification. So as I ended last week, I just kind of want to give you this, um, this pickup where we were at the end of chapter 6 is that Paul gives five actions of responsibility uh, in the process of sanctification. Number one, it was reckon. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We need to understand that in Christ we have a new identity, that we are no longer who we were. Reckon that. That is something you need to count on, that you are no longer the person that you were. If you are in Christ today, if there was a moment in your life where you surrendered your life to Christ and you were then underneath his authority, you are no longer the same person that you were. You, you're completely changed. You are a new person in Christ. 
That is, that is good stuff, okay? So you are new. You reckon yourself dead to sin. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Understand that there are going to be temptations and sins that are going to pop up in your life, and you are to resist that in the flesh and remain in him, abide in him. Frederick Lewis Godet put it this way, to abide in me expresses the continual act by which the Christian sets aside everything which he might derive from his own wisdom, strength, merit, to draw all from Christ. There is a moment where you realize there is, there is nothing in me. I'm not wise enough. I don't know enough. I can't understand enough. I don't have enough strength within me. I can't, I can't muster up enough motivation in myself. I can't even do enough good deeds to merit this in my life. I am completely reliant upon the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ for everything that is good within me. This is abiding. And then you would relinquish. Relinquish the old self. This is why he would say in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, that you would relinquish the old self. I no longer want anything to do with that old self. I no longer want to live in the ways that I once lived. I want to relinquish all control to the lordship of Jesus Christ so that he would then produce in me something I'm incapable of producing in myself, that he would reproduce in me a fruit of righteousness. So if this is where we are in the chapter and in the book of Romans, there's this, so what does that look like? In the life of a believer, it looks like a struggle. Would you agree? Yeah, I like it. it was, I thought it was going to be a rhetorical question, but you answered it. That was great. Now, Paul explains in chapter 7 the resistance of the old self and the inner rebellion of flesh is exposed and intensified by the law. It now becomes clearly clear to us that we are incapable of doing it on our own. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along with me. Romans chapter 7, as I read this and as we walk through it today. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that, produced, that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I, des I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how rich and how deep it is and how it it holds up a mirror to us so that we can see who we truly are. And Father, we would ask that but your grace and your mercy and your presence would one, one step after another change us from the inside out in this process of sanctification. And Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would take them from death to life, that they would understand the fullness of what it means to be found in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Paul gets into this, he talks about this battle, this inner battle that's going on in the life of a believer. We see this in in verses like 2 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He knows that there is this ongoing fight that is in the life of a believer. Peter would say this in 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war going on, and as, as uh, Jerry Bridges says, he says it's like a guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare, if you understand what guerrilla warfare is, is when there was one army that was moving into an area that there would be little tiny sections or, or people that would then get into the bushes and they would do surprise attacks and there would be no, no form to their warfare whatsoever. It would just be guerrilla warfare. And the strategy behind guerrilla warfare is this. For successful guerrilla warfare, I got this out of the encyclopedia, so you know what's good, right? The strategy for successful guerrilla warfare is that of extended and prolonged harassment accomplished by extremely subtle, flexible tactics designed to wear down the enemy. These subtle and flexible tactics are based on surprise and deception. Now, when you think about the guerrilla warfare that's taking place in the life of a believer, that's exactly what it is. It is a prolonged harassment. Now, if, if you're in here and you're a believer, how many of you would say that there are sins in your life that just keep coming up over and over and over, and you feel the harassment that is going on there to where you just feel defeated at sometimes? Am I right? 
This is the guerrilla warfare that's taking place. Not only that, but it is flexible in how it's going to come at you. Last time it came at me this way, this time it's coming at me this way. It's subtle. All of a sudden it pops out of nowhere and it's a surprise attack. And after a while, the goal is to deceive you into believing that this is okay for you, that you might as well just give in. See, although sin no longer reigns over us, it will constantly try to get at us. This is the struggle of sanctification. We have been delivered from the kingdom of sin and its rule, but we have not been delivered from its attacks. This is why Paul would urge all believers to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, you are in a warfare. So put on the whole armor of God. Christian, be ready because the deceptive schemes of the devil and the subtle surprise attacks that come from the guerrilla warfare of the flesh seek to turn your instincts into lust your appetites into indulgences, your wants into idols, and your interest into morality. There is this subtle, flexible tactic by the enemy that is trying to change you and deceive you into believing that things are okay, that you know are wrong. We are a new creation in Christ. We have been set free from the reign of sin. And so the war within, we have the freedom to fight. We have the freedom now to fight. We can now fight back against the schemes of the enemy. And if, you're, if you aren't fighting sin, you aren't free from sin. Rather, you're enslaved to sin. Free men fight. This is why we love the movie Braveheart. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Yeah, it makes it get you fired up, doesn't it? Bob Marley, I'm not going to try to do his accent. Better to die fighting for freedom than be a prisoner all the days of your life. We're free, and free people fight. We fight because we know we're free, and we no longer want to be enslaved to the old way of life. This is why Paul now uses the marriage illustration that we began last week. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So basically what Paul is doing is he's just giving this biblical reference of what marriage is and what the law is, that when you get married, there's this vow that is said, till death do us part, right? That you are held under that till death do us part. And so he's saying this. So this section of scripture teaches us that the legal bond of marriage between one husband and one wife is bound until there is a death. Meaning that if a husband dies, the wife is no longer held to that legal bond, but is now free to remarry. This is what Paul is saying because he's going to use this illustration to show us the marriage that we have with Christ. So Christ is the new husband. The bride is the church, the new self. And we are now united together. This is what we talked about last week, that we are dead to our sin, 
that we are buried with Christ through baptism, that we are immersed with him, and that we are risen to newness of life, that we now have a union with Christ. And so this is the marriage that we have. So who's the old husband? The old husband then is our old sin nature. It's the old self that has to be put away. And so when you get this imagery, when you get this idea, you see yourself in a whole new relationship than the one you had before. So why would you live in the old way? Because this is the new you. This is the new marriage. And just like when marriage happens, when, when you come into a marriage, all of your things become our things, right? Yeah, you, if you don't know that, you need to know that going into marriage, right? So that means your student debt becomes my student debt, right? That's what that means. A little too close to home? Okay. So, you know, this is what it means. So what does this mean when we are married with Christ? It means all the things that we have that are his are ours. This means that the righteousness that he has, the obedience that he has, is now credited to us. We are now in a new relationship. The old is dead. We are no longer in this marriage. We are now in this marriage. We are are given all of these blessings because of our union with Christ. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The things you did before the fruit that was in your life, the things that came out of your life when you were in this other marriage, all produced a death in you because you were constantly enslaved to sin. But now you have been set free in order that you might bear fruit, that he would do something in you, that you would be 100% responsible for saying no to sin, but simultaneously 100% reliant upon Christ to produce in you something that you are incapable of producing yourself. This is beautiful. Paul, Paul's pretty deep, okay? So just hang in there with me, okay? This is why John would say, or record Jesus saying in 15, 5, and 6, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. This is the idea that if you are now in this marriage relationship, you will bear fruit. There's something that's going to change in you. And it's going to be Christ and the Holy Spirit working in and and through you, through the process of sanctification. So if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So this is the picture of you're either in the marriage or you're not in the marriage. And how can you tell if you're in the marriage with Christ? You will bear fruit There will be something that happens in your life. So your union with Christ, you belong, you bear. If you belong, you bear. There will be fruit that is produced in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things will begin to be produced in your life, not because of anything you've done or how good you are at following the law, but because Christ is now in you and working through you. So if you don't bear, what does that mean? You don't belong. You're not in that relationship. And you can only fake fruit for so long. You can only fake it for so long. And I've given this illustration, and it's been a couple years back, but my mom, bless her heart, she had this bowl of fake fruit. Y'all remember this illustration? She had this bowl of fake fruit, and, and she loved for the fake fruit to look like real fruit. And it was like a win for her if you grabbed the peach and were like, ah, got me. But it wasn't enough that the fruit looked 
real. She wanted to go the next step, so she took produce stickers off of real fruit and put it on fake fruit <laughs> so that it would look even more fake you know, or even more real, even though it was fake, right? Okay, so here's what, here's what Christian rule following and religion does. It takes, it takes the sticker of the law and puts it on just to fool you. It's to say, look at me. Everything on the exterior is following the rules. But inside, it's nothing. This is what the Pharisees were accused of by Jesus. Look, you're like whitewashed tombs. You've got it all going on on the outside, but you're faking it. Because there's not been a union, a transformation that's taken place within you. So what does this new marriage mean for us? Let me reiterate this. It means that Christ fulfilled the law where you failed so, where you failed. So now, through a union with Christ, his obedience and righteousness has been credited to you. So now that you're in this marriage, now that you're joined with Christ, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. Not only that, but he now produces in you the fruit of righteousness that results in a life freed from achieving a law externally, but by producing in you a, righteous, a righteousness internally. You're not just following rules. He's producing in you something that produces a fruit of righteousness. This is why Stephen Lawson would say, if you're not bearing fruit for God, you are not fulfilling the purpose for which he saved you. Let me ask you right now, when you look at your life, and you look at the life, if you are in Christ, are you bearing fruit? Can you see that he is producing in you a change that comes from within? Not that you're putting a sticker or a label of the law on your life that says, look, I follow these rules. But is he changing you from the inside out? This is sanctification, that you are 100% responsible, but you are also simultaneously 100% reliant upon him to produce in you what you are incapable of doing on your own. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is a beautiful verse right here. So now that you've been released, now that you've been joined with Christ, you no longer live in the old way of the written code. You live in the spirit. You live in newness of life. Now you live in abiding relationship with Christ that produces in you something that is far greater than what you could do by applying this, this to your life in your own effort. This is the new way. So a new way is abiding in the spirit. The old way is achieving through law keeping. But here's what happens. When we get into this relationship with Christ, it's almost as if we believe that I just, needed, I just needed a little spark of Jesus, and now I've got it. I, I was really messing up before, and, and, and I, I was just kind of like really struggling, but then, you know, I, I just need a little bit of Jesus. And now that I've got a little bit of Jesus, I can do it. I can follow this law. I can, I can live out this way. It's like when your, your car breaks down, like you, you know the battery's dead, and you have to ask someone to jump for jumper cables and jump you off. It, it would be foolish for you to get jumped off and then just go driving like nothing ever happened. At that point, you need to go get a new battery, okay? But for us, sometimes we say, you know what, I don't really need a new heart, I don't need a new battery. I just need, I just need a little bit of Jesus juice and then I can go on, right? I can go on with my life. I didn't mean to say it that way, but it came out. I just need a little bit. And so we revert back to rule following. We revert back to the old way of the written code. 
And the danger in reverting back to the old way of the code is that we hold ourselves to a standard that we cannot do on our own. And not only that, we hold others to a standard where they can't do it on their own. We are called to walk in a newness of life. This is why the new covenant says this in Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. A newness of heart. So I want to ask you, has there been a moment in your life where you know Christ changed you? I'm not asking you if you've lived perfect since then because we're talking about the battle of sin. I'm asking you if there's a new heart and a new desire in you to live for Christ. That you long to bear fruit that you're incapable of producing on your own, but you long for him to produce it in you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You cannot be partly Christian. You're either dead or alive. You're either born or not born. Becoming a Christian is not a gradual process. There is nothing uncertain about it. We either are or we are not Christian. The process of sanctification means that we have entered into a new life in Christ. There is a struggle with sin that goes along with that, but we are freed from having to achieve anything on our own. He will produce that in us. Matthew Henry says, Once you were saved and yet trying to continue to serve in oldness of the letter by obeying the letter of the law, anytime a believer tries to live under the letter of the law, know for certain that the law will kill. You won't lose your salvation, but you will not experience the growth and holiness sanctification. The letter or holy law of God is not an external code of do's and don'ts. Rather, it is a law of love written on our hearts. We do not obey the law because we fear the Lord, but because we love him. We, who are in Christ, have been given a new marriage, a new union. We love Christ so much that now we want to see him produce in us something that is far greater than just the law. That's why Paul would say to the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Free people fight. Free people fight from going back into slavery of rule following. Free people fight to stay connected and close to Jesus Christ so he will produce in them something they're incapable of producing on their own. So in the war within, we fight, but also the war within, the rebel is revealed. The rebel is then revealed. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law does three things. Number one, the law of God defines sin outside of us. It makes us aware of what is right and wrong. This week I was sitting at a red light. I mean, sitting at the red light. It was not yellow. It was red. And yet, in my rearview mirror, I see someone coming up, and I was like, look at this person who can't drive well, right? <laughs> look at this guy. And sure enough, he blows through the intersection, and I was like, he's breaking the law. How do I know that he's breaking the law? Because the law has been given. I am 
completely aware when someone else around me breaks the law. It defines sin outside of us. So we see rebellion. Rebellion is complete opposition to what authority is. If, if Adam and Eve in the garden hadn't known they shouldn't eat from the tree, would they have rebelled? But once that was out there, then there was this part of them that was like, oh, this is the law, and now I know what rebellion is. Without the law, we wouldn't know what authority is and what it means to oppose authority. Rebellion, then, is always linked to pride because rebellion flies under the banner of truth as relative. The fact that there is a world out there that says truth is relative, that this is true of me and it may not be true of you, but it's true of me, says that I am rebellious in nature because I don't want to accept the law. Because that would be black and white and I want to live in some gray area here of the law. I want to be able to run the red light and be like, well, it just made sense for me this time. I felt like it was okay. So it's easy to see the sin in others. And that's why Jesus would say in Matthew 7, 3-5, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So not only does the law define sin outside of us so we see it in others but it also discloses the sin that is within us it shows us what is within us for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. There was a newspaper article that was published, and I don't know when or where, but um, it was published, and the, the whole premise was this sign that was posted on this man's property. The sign posted on the man's property said, no trespassing, no hunting, no nothing, no nothing. So the newspaper article said, all right, no trespassing and no hunting. Well, well, that's the landowner's prerogative. But no nothing? That makes you want to beep your horn and shout out the window and anything else you can think of to resist. Right? You can't tell me no nothing. There's a part of us that rebels once we're given the law. There's a part of us that, that is so corrupted by sin that we think, well, you know what, that, that doesn't apply to me. So sin corrupts our God-given yearnings and makes us believe that our desires can be satisfied apart from the Lord. As a result, we desire the very thing we're told not to. How many of you know this is true? How many of you have ever told your kid, no, you can't have a cookie until after dinner? And what is the very, like, they didn't even, I didn't even know there was cookies. Wait, there's cookies? I want a cookie now. You know, this, this, is, this is us, this is our nature. So the law works like a, like a plumb line. And a plumb line that's held up next to a building does not straighten anything. It just tells you how crooked the structure is and where it needs to be changed. When we see the law, it reveals to us how crooked and rebellious we really are. And then it ignites in us this desire to break the law. This is our sin creeping up in us. 
And thirdly, the law of God displays the standard of what is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So God's law shows us, like a mirror, the glory and radiance of God's perfection, but it also shows us for what we really are. It shows us how marred we truly are by sin. And if it were not for the law, we would not come to Christ and beg for mercy because we would not be aware of how sinful we really are. It reminds me of this African tribal woman. When missionaries finally reached that uh, tribe, they went in and they set up tents and they were talking to different people in the tribe, one after another. And one of the ladies walked into a tent of one of the missionaries and she saw a mirror. And this is the first time she had ever seen a mirror. And she looked and she saw her face and it was tattooed and wrinkled and it had been worn by years and years and years of living out in the bush. And she saw herself and her reflection and she was horrified by it. So she grabbed the mirror and she smashed it. I never want to see that again. When we really see how holy and righteous and good God is, and we get a glimpse into how marred we are, you will either run to Christ or you will run from Christ. So the war within and the conflict of control. The final part of this is who's calling the shots in your life. Christian, I'm going to ask you that this morning. As you come in here, who's, who's really in charge? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It brings us to this controversial part of Scripture, and theologians have wrestled back and forth on this section of who is Paul referring to? Is he talking in first person? Is he referring to himself? Is he referring to himself after conversion or pre-conversion? The controversy comes in, in the way that it's worded. Paul is either referring to the present struggle as a believer that every believer goes through, the torment of sin that lingers on after salvation, or Paul is referring to the pre-conversion status that he tried to live up to according to the law without the indwelling presence of the Spirit. So you can go back and forth. There's arguments on either side. But really what it comes down to is, regardless of these arguments, the fact remains the same, that there is a constant battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Religious law-keeping disguised as Christianity has no power to change you. It only enslaves you, exasperates you, and eventually defeats you. 
when we try to follow the law, I know what is right and I want to do it. When we try to muster up the, the ability to do that on our own, it will eventually enslave us, draw us back. It will exasperate us because we can't do it and it will eventually defeat us. As Kenneth Weiss put it, the problem isn't desire. He wants to do what is right. His problem isn't knowledge. He knows the right thing. His problem is a lack of power. How to perform what is good, I do not find. He lacks power because the law gives no power. Law says, here are the rules, and you had better keep them. But it imparts no power to us for keeping the law. Anyone who has tried to do good is aware of this struggle. We never know how hard it is to stop something until we try. This is the struggle of anyone who tries to obey God in their own strength, which is still something that Christians try to do, and it is only the thing that a non-Christian can do because he has no indwelling spirit. That's why Jesus would say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you tried to submit yourself to the law apart from the indwelling power and presence of the Spirit? The law imparts no power to you. Your ability to keep the law will only show you that you can't do it. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2, 20-23, as Jonathan read a few weeks back, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. If we try to simply use the law to keep us from doing the things we know we shouldn't do, there is no power in that. That's why we no longer walk in the old manner, but we walk in the new manner in the spirit. And when we realize that we are hopeless and we are helpless and we need our union with Christ to produce in us something new, we have this response. Wretched man that I am. I'm wretched. Church, if you want a perfect pastor, I'll never be it. I'm wretched. And I am hopeless without Christ. There is sin that is continually trying to attack me. It is walking through, and there is guerrilla warfare after guerrilla warfare after guerrilla warfare, surprise attack after surprise attack after surprise attack, and it wears me down. Does it wear you down? Oh, wretched man that I am. I am hopeless without Christ. I cannot keep the law. Man, I have tried. I have tried to meet the law. I have tried my best to, to follow the rules. Some of the rules that weren't even found in the Bible, they were just given to me through the de denomination. I've tried. And it's exhausting. Are you weary? Are you worn out? Do you long for rest? That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and you will find rest. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
A wretched man is someone who is helpless and miserable. They are found themselves in a place of despair because they cannot rid themselves towards their bent of sinfulness. The story goes that the body of death in Roman times was a way of persecution and crucifixion. Even Charles Spurgeon refers to it. That when someone murdered someone else, that part of the way of dealing with the the consequence of that was taking the dead body and binding it to the person until the decaying body eventually killed that person. And so when Paul writes to the Romans and he says, who will free me from this body of death? He's referring back to the old man. I feel like I've been strapped to this old man and his decaying sinful body is is just infiltrating every part of my life. And I can't shake it. Who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's my only hope. So then I myself serve a law of, of God with my mind. My mind wants to serve the law, but with my flesh, I serve a law of sin. I see that it continually pulls me down. Harry Ironside, I'm going to end with this. If I'm addressing any believer who is even now in the agonizing throes of this terrific struggle, endeavoring to subject the flesh to the holy law of God, let me urge you to accept God's own verdict on the flesh and acknowledge the impossibility of ever making it behave itself. Do not fight with it. It will overthrow you every time. Turn away from it. Cease from it altogether and look away from self and law to Christ risen. Christ alone.